Before we return to our series in 1 Peter, God willing, next week, I thought we'd just take a few moments tonight to look at these wonderful verses at the end of this letter of Jude. And, you know, all the great truths of the gospel, they're so important, so necessary, so precious. But one of the most comforting of them all is the truth that as salvation is a gift of grace, a gift of sovereign grace, it is God's work from beginning to end, and so in Christ we are eternally secure. We're safe in his hand. And the truth is often called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, once saved, saved forever. And so if you have received eternal life by grace, you can never lose that. Otherwise, it wouldn't be eternal life. And so the great and glorious truths that we see in the gospel truths like justification and regeneration being made new, conversion, being brought to Christ and that turn, that looking to him, adoption into the family of God, being reconciled to God, that redemption, that being bought back with a price, all of that would be diminished if salvation was not forever. Our joy, our confidence, our assurance, our rest, our comfort and our hope are significantly downgraded and replaced with doubt and fear and anxiety and worry if we lose that element. And friends, we live in a world which is uncertain. We live in a world that is broken and really is in a mess. And yet we have this wonderful message to proclaim that here is certainty. Here is truth. Here is promises where we can rest upon them and know that they're sure here is one who, when he speaks, we can indeed believe every word that is said. And you know, that is a wonderful thing to proclaim. People are looking to all manner of things, but they need, above all, to look to the Lord Jesus. And the call to follow Christ, it is costly. We've seen this in our time in Matthew in the mornings. The Savior declares that we have to confess him as Lord, that we have to deny self, take up the cross and follow him. And the call to salvation, it involves the, the turning from sin and the commitment of everything, giving ourselves wholly over to the Savior, an abandonment of everything to Christ, yielding everything to Him. And you know, to repent of sin and to trust the Savior. You know, let me ask you, have you done that? Are you saved tonight? Are you looking to the Savior? But you know, just think for a moment, consider the prospect that, you know, if you have done that, once you trusted Christ, so this divine salvation comes to you, but then there's no guarantees. So in other words, you, you look to the Lord as your only hope in life and in death, but then you've got this possibility and that you're told that, well, he might not hold on to you. So it's okay now, but it might not be then. Well, where would you go with that? That'd be disastrous. Because if the Lord doesn't save and keep sinners like you and me, there's no hope. If salvation is not all of God, then we are done. I wonder if you understand that tonight. If it's not his work, if he does not keep, there is no way that I would be saved. If you could lose your salvation, you would lose it. If any part of my eternal salvation depends upon my power, my ability, my commitment, my righteousness, then it's over. You know, we may as well go home. It is all of grace. 
And it's all of grace. You know, I stand here tonight and say that it's all of grace that I'm still following the Lord all these years. You know, I'm amazed when I think about that, that there have been seasons when I thought I might not have gone through, and yet he has held me and he has kept me. It's all of grace. If we don't realize that, then really we don't understand what scriptures are telling us. You know, as we go on as believers, we grow, we go on with the Lord, but also we become increasingly aware of just how sinful we are. As believers, you know, we're not perfect. This church is not perfect. This is a place for sinners saved by grace. And as believers, we still wrestle with the flesh. We sin. We're prone to sin. We're, we're prone to doubt and unbelief and at times rebellion and pride. And, and God sees us in our best and worst moments. And then you've got the enemy. He wants to bring all manner of accusations against us. Even our own conscience can be quick to condemn us. You know, how could we ever secure our own salvation? It's impossible. And so if I could lose my salvation, I would. We all would. And if I did think I could lose my salvation and fall back into an unsafe state, where would the line be? At what point do you lose it? You know, where is the measure? Where is the standard? What standard would we measure against? You know, we can always find people who we think are worse than we are. You know, we'd have to justify why we thought we were, we were good enough to hold on to our salvation. How easy then to fall into self-righteousness and spiritual pride, which are the total opposite of real Christianity, of knowing Christ, which produces true humility in a person. If we had to keep ourselves saved, we would be living in a state of constant fear we could not do. Spurgeon said, no man can keep himself, he'll surely fail. If left to ourselves, there's only one destination, and that's hell. Only Jesus can save us from our sins. And the biblical truth that salvation is holy of the Lord, you know, it is interwoven in the other precious gospel truths as well. Let me just give you some of them. So the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is inseparable from the doctrine of election. So if he chose you to eternal life, the Lord will see you there. Likewise, it's inseparable from the doctrine of justification. If he covered you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ when you were saved, if Christ paid in full the penalty of your sin, then never could any sin that you commit be held against you again. Therefore, there'd be no basis on which to ever take your salvation away because all your sin has been paid for in full. It's tied inseparably as well to the work of the Holy Spirit by whom we are sealed in the process of sanctification. It's inseparable from the great doctrine of glorification. God has alleged you in eternity past, has called you in time, justified you, sanctified you. How then could he not bring you to glory? If you can lose your salvation, the purpose of God is thwarted, the power of God is diminished. And so salvation is all of grace, and thank God that it is. And this perseverance is the effect of God's glory and his majesty and his power and his authority. And without that, we have no hope. And so this really is what Jude draws out again in very wonderful terms in these verses, verses 24 and 25. You know, all those things are there, and yet still there are some who may not be sure. 
And there may be those who ask, well, you know, can someone who has truly turned to the Lord and, and truly been forgiven and, and all those things, can they lose their salvation? Well, this great benediction deals very clearly with this, that God is able to keep you. He will present you in the presence of his glory, faultless with great joy. And when he does, all the glory goes to him because all the keeping is his. You know, if I were to see myself through, then part of that glory would go to me. But that cannot be, and this text devastates that view. And this text, verses 24 and 25, is what we call a doxology. It is an outpouring of praise to the God who saves and keeps. Now, Scripture is filled with doxologies. You know, if you were to read through the Psalms, at the end of each of the five books, there is a doxology. Responses of a praise for God's glorious work amongst his people. You know, when Christ was born, Luke 2, the angels sang a doxology. They break out in praise. People gave a doxology when Christ arrived in Jerusalem when they hailed him as Messiah in Luke 19. No doxology ever deals with mundane matters. They always deal with salvation, with what is eternally marvelous. They are words of grateful praise to God for saving sinners. And doxology is a foretaste of glory. It is a foretaste of heaven. This is what the redeemed are going to be involved in for all eternity. Endless praise as we glory in Christ and the wonder of salvation. And that kind of spontaneous Holy Spirit energized doxology is found all the way through the New Testament. Think of 1 Timothy 1.17. You know, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Why does Paul launch into that praise? Well, he just finished speaking of how he, the chief of sinners, had found mercy. And so doxology comes in response to the saving work of God, and it recognizes that it is all his work. He receives all the credit, all the honor, all the glory. And that is what Jude speaks of here, but let's just consider for a minute the context in which he brings this. So Jude had called the church of Christ to stand truly and squarely against false teachers and apostates. If you look back at verse 4 of the passage that we read, it says that certain men have crept in unnoticed. So there are those who have come into the church, they're like reefs under the surface, hidden in the church, they're ungodly, they're licentious, and they deny the truth of the gospel and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so they become embedded in the church. And so Jude is writing a warning and an exhortation against that. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he outlines some of the history and characteristics of these kind of apostates. And then in verse 17, he says, but you beloved. So in other words, you know, how are you going to defend yourself in a time when there's so much error? How are you going to protect yourself? How are you going to stand well, he tells us at the end of the passage. So in verse 17, he says, But you, beloved, firstly, verses 17 to 19, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, go back to the truth. Go back to the gospel. And remember that they said, too, that in the last times, there would be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. And so Jude says, remember this, this shouldn't be a surprise to you. 
They said this was happened. Don't be surprised, it's been prophesied many times. And so when you're caught in a time of apostasy, you begin to wonder how things could be so wrong, how the church could be so off course, how it could defect and pervert itself from the truth. Remember, this is no surprise. This was what was going to happen. This was what was prophesied. And then in verses 20 to 21, he says, but, but you beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. In other words, remain in the place of blessing. Don't get lost and pulled around in all different directions. Get yourself in the place of blessing. Remain faithful to spiritual growth, spiritual communion, spiritual obedience, and indeed hold out your spiritual hope be under the word. Be in a place where you're going to grow and be fed. Be in a place which is right and safe. And then he says, thirdly, verses 22 to 23, and on some have compassion, making the distinction, but others save with fear, pull them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And so he says, the Lord promised this would happen. Remain in the place of blessing. Be strengthened on the word but reach out to those who are also being captivated by this error and falsehood. You know, as a church, we have a responsibility in this world to make plain and clear the truth of God, <clears throat> to rescue people out of apostasy and false religious systems, and it is dangerous work. It is dangerous work to call out, and you can get singed snatching people from the fire. And so the question then is this, if this apostasy, if this error is so dangerous and so deadly, if this false teaching is so harmful and potentially dangerous, is it possible that we could lose our salvation? If we can, would we really want to put ourselves in that danger? Why would we not just sort of separate ourselves off and just focus on us? If we seek to reach these people with the true gospel, if we're going to reach out and engage, will we endure? And so Jude ends on this amazing note of assurance, and he says, there are two things that you must know. God is able to keep you, and God will make you stand in the presence of his glory. And so you can trust him and you can rest in him. You know, can he keep me? Can he, can he get me there? Can he lead me through Jude says that not only can he do that, but he will do that. He will do that for his own. And so it's really simple what he says in this wonderful doxology. He says that believers are preserved by the Lord. They're preserved by the Lord. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. God is able. And if you are you know, being pulled around tonight, maybe you're filled with doubts, maybe there are many things going on, you need to look again to the God who is able to save and to keep. And you say, well, but, but does he want to? That goes without saying. You know, he doesn't want his own to be lost in sin, to lose what he has given them. It's his very character and his promise which is at stake. Why would he do all for us only then to leave us to throw it all away because we are incapable of anything else? 
His heart is to save his people. He wants to, and he is able. It's interesting, in 2 Peter 3, 9, you have that well-known verse among some, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. You know, the Lord promised that he was going to come and take his people to glory, but believers at the time of Peter were wondering when it's going to happen. And Peter says, don't be too anxious because with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. God doesn't watch the clock. He doesn't watch the calendar like you. Because he hasn't come and hasn't fulfilled the promise doesn't mean he's slack or indifferent. He's patient and he's patient towards you. You say, well, who is the you? Well, it's believers. Peter says he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. You know, it's so important to understand, why does the Lord tarry? Why doesn't he come? Why does redemptive history keep going on? He's being patient towards his people, toward you, and not wishing for any of his people to perish, but for all of his people to come to repentance. Some people think that this means he wants the, the whole world to come in, but of course, that cannot be the case because the text is in the context of judgment. Verse 7, the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So Peter is saying that redemptive history will go on until all have been brought in and then will come the end. God is not willing that any of his own perish, but they'll all come to repentance. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And he's talking there again about the people that the Father gives the Son, all people that are saved throughout all redemptive history, love gifts from the Father to the Son. If you're a believer tonight, you're a love gift from the Father to the Son. And they constitute the bride that the Father has sought and is seeking for his Son. And so time keeps going until the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. And the one who comes, he will not cast out. Of course not. He's a gift from the Father. You know, some say, oh, well, you know, that type of view, that really limits evangelism. No, it doesn't. I don't know whom the Lord has set for salvation. My job is to preach the gospel to all. And God will do the rest. And so I cry out to all to trust the Lord to trust Christ. He goes on in that gospel in John and says, this is the will of the Father who sent me that all of he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And so the Father gives to the Son, the Son keeps, the Son raises on the last day, nobody falls through the cracks. Nobody somehow slips out of their grasp. Because that's what we're saying if people can lose their salvation. And in case you're not sure, again in that passage, John 6, this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And again he goes on and he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. There is no doubt. We know that God is willing, has purpose to save sinners. And Jude wants you to know that he is able, he is the only God our Savior, and if he doesn't save us, we cannot save ourselves. He is able. You know that word there, you know, it speaks of like a, a dynamite. 
and mighty power. It's a wonderful reality. The Word of God is full of great statements concerning the power of God. Let me just give you some examples. 2 Corinthians 9.8 God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. All grace abound toward you. Ephesians 3.20 Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That resurrection power. Hebrews 7 Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Save to the uttermost. You know, we live in an age, friends, where false teaching and error is spreading at an unprecedented rate because of the means of media, communication. And in such, we are called to rescue people from such things. And the question is, well, you know, should we draw back in fear? You know, should we hold back just in case we mount encounter danger in trying to help others? No. If you're a true believer, you are in no danger of fatal corruption because our God is able. And though the path to glory is dangerous and filled with many trials and challenges, it is also a path in which we are held and he keeps us and brings us through. Him who is able to keep literally to guard us, to watch over us. He is able to keep us safe in his hand, even when we're under assault or in the valley. And he will keep us from falling. You know, it's the only place where this word is used in Scripture. He keeps us from this apostasy and falling. And how does he do it? By the gift of a permanent faith, a new heart, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He holds on to us. John 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Can it be any clearer? You know, are we altering that, what the Lord says there? Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. He reinforces it. John 10, verses 29, my father who has given to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my Father are one. He says, I won't let go. The Father won't let go. No one is powerful to force us to release anyone from our grip. Philippians 1, 6, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He who has started it will finish it. And Jude says, apostates in Israel fell, apostate angels fell, apostates in Sodom and Gomorrah fell, but true believers are kept. Because the Lord has the will and he has the power to preserve us. And then secondly and lastly, believers are presented by the Lord. Preserved by the Lord, presented by the Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He will present us, he will make us stand. You know, the believer now stands in grace and will be brought to stand in glory. The opposite of falling is standing, enduring to the end, that perseverance being preserved. And true believers are given that faith which endures. He who keeps us will present us. Now, of course, there are those instances in Scripture where it speaks of those going out and those disappearing. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, 
but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And so when someone abandons the faith entirely and totally, the question is, were they ever real? You know, it goes on, verses 20 and 23, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And so that true belief in Christ, that genuine faith in Christ, is a gift of God and it cannot be removed. And so when somebody falls away utterly and entirely, it is because they never were of us. But the text in Jude is not about standing on earth. We're kept on earth but also being presented in glory. We will stand in the presence of his glory. He keeps us here and he will take us there. It is astonishing grace. And when Jude, in this rapture of praise, he is just amazed at what it takes to sustain spiritual life and to keep it from collapsing and to bring it to glory, blameless and blessed. And he has a sense of what it takes to keep us believing, to keep us alive. And it's just vast and it's great and it's majestic. It's the very power of God. You know, in the scripture, when you read of someone in the presence of God, it's a, often a traumatic experience. Think of Isaiah, Isaiah pronounces a curse on himself. Ezekiel falls over like a dead person. Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration they fall over and sort of out of the situation. John in the book of Revelation, he sees the, the vision of Christ and he falls down as dead. It's a frightening experience because they know that they're sinful. And any true believer who ever stood in the presence of God in this life, in the flesh, in this unredeemed human condition would fall over in terror before the holiness of God. But someday we're told here, we will stand in the presence of his glory faultless. Instead of fear, there will be great joy. Think of Revelation 21. There shall by no means enter, speaking of the heavenly city, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. So inside are the washed and the cleansed, but outside, Revelation 22, are dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, whoever loves and practices a lie. Those don't come into the presence of God. And so what will the believers say at that point? Oh, well, I've kept myself. You know, I, I finished off what you began to give me, Lord. I, I finished it. And so because of the way that I've lived and the things that I've done and my commitment, well, I deserve to be in your presence. Well, that's a ludicrous thought. To stand in his holy, glorious presence, we have to be faultless and blameless and pure. And that's what we've been given in Jesus Christ. You know, Isaiah 61.10 has become a really precious verse to me in recent days. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. You see, the Savior has taken the punishment we deserve. He has dealt with our sin at the cross so that we're forgiven. And so the believer is treated as if they are blameless because Christ 
has borne their sin and dealt with it. But we are also then given his righteousness, clothed in his perfection, so that when God looks upon us, he doesn't see all the filth of our sin, but he sees the righteousness and the perfection of his son so that we are accepted. And so we are there and we are accepted. We are faultless all because of Christ, not because of us. And so now the believer being prepared for glory, we're being transformed. We have to lose this body of flesh, go into God's presence. One day we'll receive a new body, but that will happen. And we won't just be there alive survivors. We won't just be free from guilt and sin. We will be holy and blameless and faultless and totally in line with the law of God. And it's not just that there will be there in the absence of sin, but in the presence of holiness. We'll not only be uh, not capable of doing evil or sin, we'll only be capable of doing what is right. Every power, every passion will be freed from the, the tainting of sin, from evil, and will be devoted to holiness. And we'll be there with our heads lifted, blameless before God. And instead of fear and trauma, we'll be overwhelmed with joy forever. Do you know joy defines heaven? Zephaniah 3.17 gives us an insight in this heavenly joy. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will rejoice over you with singing. God will rejoice over us. And we will rejoice over the Lord Jesus Christ and the wonder of our God. Who can fathom such a thing? You know, God himself singing. You know, one of the older writers says, I can imagine when the world was made, the morning stars sang together, shouting for joy, but God didn't sing. He said it was very good, that's all. There was no song. But when all the chosen race shall meet around the throne, the joy of the eternal Father shall swell so high that God, as it were, will burst into infinite song. And nothing can change that. Nothing can thwart that. Romans 8 makes it very clear that nothing can separate the believer from the love of God. No one can lay any charge or condemn God's elect. Nothing can happen that does not turn out for the believer's good, because whomever the Lord has called, he is justified, he is sanctified, he is glorified. And tonight, dear friend, do we not rest in that? You know, if you're a troubled believer, and maybe you've been stumbling along the way, you need to come again and see the wonder of what Christ has done and the fullness of what he has done. And when we begin to contemplate that, surely we will join with Jude and in that outpouring of praise and say to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. All credit goes to our God, who is our Savior through Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. To him be all the glory, the one who keeps and presents, we will be in glory, preserved and presented because of him. And the glory and the majesty and the power and the authority that takes to keep you and me alive in Christ, to keep us praying, to keep us trusting, to keep us in the work, 
to keep us in the love of God was secured for us sinners when Christ died for us. And so the glory and majesty and dominion and authority that keeps us from falling, presents us blameless and joyful to God is through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the blood of the covenant. And so when we ascribe glory and majesty and dominion and authority to God, we do it through Christ alone. I'm going to finish with a quote from Spurgeon. And he says this, When I heard it said that the Lord would keep his people right to the end, when I heard it said that Christ said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. When I heard that said, I must confess that the doctrine of the final preservation of the saints was the bait that my soul could not resist. It was a sort of life insurance, an assurance of my character, of my soul, of my eternal destiny. I knew I could not keep myself. But if Christ promised to keep me, then I would be safe forever. And I longed and I prayed to find Christ because I knew that if I found him, he wouldn't give me a temporary salvation, as some preach, but he would give me eternal life, which could never be lost. The living and incorruptible seed which lives and abides forever, for no one and nothing could ever separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friend, if you want that certainty in an uncertain world, then just like Charles Haddon Spurgeon all those years ago, you pray to find Christ and know that he saves to the uttermost all that call on his name. The Lord preserves us. He will present us in glory. And surely that should make us rejoice. In all the mess around us, in Christ, we have a certain secure hope, both now and forever. And I pray that you would know it this night for yourself and that you would be resting in Jesus Christ. Amen.